there's the effect called proximity effect that the closer you get to a cardioid microphone, the more bottom end buildup you get in the sound, just by the, the again, the nature of physics. Can, can you demonstrate? You're on a cardioid mic right now. I am on a cardioid mic, so I'm now going to get louder, but I'll also get boomier the closer I get to the microphone. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's Lid Shaw, your host for Recording Studio Rockstars. I created the show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Shane D. Wilson, a Grammy-nominated, chart-rocking, multi-genre music recording engineer. Starting out in the audio technology program at Indiana University, Shane later relocated to Nashville, Tennessee in 1991, which is the same year that I moved here, and was soon assisting some of the top engineers in town. Not long after that, Shane was able to establish himself as a principal engineer through his work with Charlie Peacock Productions. His career has then led him on to work with bands like Switchfoot, David Crowder, Derek Webb, Amy Lee, Owsley, Michael W. Smith, Mercy Me, and Wes Cunningham, among many. Shane often works from his cozy St. Izzy's of the East studio, using a creative hybrid of analog and digital technologies to create his beautiful sounds. And we'll definitely talk about that and how he likes to record and mix music on the show. So thanks so much for joining us today on Recording Studio Rockstars. Shane, are you ready to rock, my friend? I am ready to rock at 1035 in the morning. Yes. Awesome, man. Well, welcome, dude. Glad to have you here on the show. I've done my best to introduce you. Can you tell us more about who you are in your own words? Love to. Uh, Like you said, I moved to Nashville in 91, and uh, it occurred to me while I was preparing for this interview that that was 25 years ago because it was uh, literally January 1st of 91 that I moved here. And yeah. it's kind of freaking me out. But Finally, 25 years ago. Because, you know, how many times have people ask you how long you've been here? You're like, it's been 23, four, four years. And you're always like, I just want to say 25. Yeah. Well, I, and I would usually default to 20 just because it, I didn't want to feel so damn old, I guess. But yeah, it's actually been 25 years now. And uh, as I was prepping for the show, thinking about that 25 year span since you've been here the same amount of time, what an interesting timeline for which to enter pro recording. Cause I got here, it was still analog. I, I was well-versed in analog alignment and, and consoles and signal flow for that. But months into being here, I was introduced to my first multi-track portable recording option and it just exploded from there. Not, not too many months past that was the the ADAT um, invasion and the Tascam D88s. And Do you remember what that first multi-track portable rig was? I am trying to remember. It was so not radar at this point. That was too no. Soon, that right? was that w- radar was post ADAT and DA88. Um, I'm trying to remember. It was about the size of an end table, if I recall, and it was tape based. So I think it was either eight or 16 channels, uh, but it was like a video cassette, not unlike oh, wow. eight oh, or D88. Yeah. Akai made some stuff like that with VHS tapes. And it stuff. may have been Akai, but that was the very first one that I remember at the studio where I was interning. 
that a producer brought in. And that was sort of his solution for once they tracked on the multi-track, he could make slave tapes on that and work elsewhere. Yeah. And that was such a big deal back then because it was basically the beginning of the home studio era. Absolutely. It was definitely the beginning of the demise of the sort of $400 a day overdub studio. Cause you know, you'd have huge uh, multi-track facilities for tracking and then several other studios that were really just control room and maybe one tracking space with a good headphone system and a console and a little bit of outboard gear that the market was specifically, instead of spending thousands a day in a big tracking room for your overdubs, do all your tracking for a week or whatever. And then you would go to one of these four to $600 rooms uh, for vocals and guitar overdubs and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, just months after I got here, it was obvious that there was a new wave coming of not even having to use the the overdub rooms anymore. And sure enough, those went away, you know, within a few years. And that's sort of become what home studios are in a lot of ways. Well, I guess home studios have become, you know, a place to make an entire record. Right. Yeah. But uh, they've also become or, you know, still are and, and initially were that sort of substitute for the, the small room for overdubs because people so often will track a record in a major studio in a big space and then take it back and just kind of do all the overdubs and maybe even the mixing at the home studio. Absolutely. But, you know, back to that 25 year thing. So, you know, saw that within months of being here. Um, and that was sort of the in-between time where you had people still doing two inch and some people did move to all eight ads or D88s just for budget or whatever. And then uh, radar was happening, which really hit in Nashville. This was a big radar town. I'm assuming it was due to the Atari connection because the Atari um, consoles and digital tape machines and analog machines were big here anyway. So then, yeah, no, that's Otari, not Atari, right? Correct, Otari. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so those happened, and then you know you started hearing about this thing called Pro Tools, and once it hit, man, it that was a big tidal wave. Yeah. So one of the real milestones for me of moving to Nashville in 91 was I remember, and I think I've said this on the show before, but I'll say it again because I like it. I remember driving around in my crappy Ford Escort station wagon, which I had spray painted entirely silver, including the tires. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And listening to local college radio, which was the Vanderbilt Vanderbilt, radio station, which, uh, I guess still exists now, but it's all entirely online and, you know, or yeah, they don't have the, the, broadcast frequencies for the airwaves anymore. But they were breaking Smells Like Teen Spirit for Nirvana at the time. Oh, wow. And I remember hearing that, you know, and that was like, that was a real milestone in music and recording as well at that mm-hmm. time. That yep. launched the the uh, the grunge rock and the indie rock, the alt rock era was right. launched from that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, right on, man. So uh, I'd like to start out with an inspirational quote. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us? Yeah. In prepping for it, I was like, what could I say? And and I was almost focusing technically or artistically or something. And then I remembered, as I was reflecting on this 25th anniversary of me being here, I'm only 30 years old, by the way. So it's kind of, you know, I came here when I was five. You're going to quote Kurt Gobain? (laughs) But no, uh, you know, thinking about that, the 25 year thing, I remembered... Uh, a producer working at the studio where I interned, which was on the eighth floor of the UA Tower on Music Row. Oh wow, that's a cool place. It it, it well, it's funky an em- cool, right? It's an empty shell now, um, but it's kind of fascinating all the things that have been torn down on Music Row, and yet that building is still standing. It's it's a 
fascinating to me. But anyway, uh, this particular producer um, had quite a reputation for being very direct in his speech and very sure of himself and his abilities. And he is a fantastic musician and a fantastic producer. But uh, I had always heard stories and how he could like you or not like you. And for some reason, he he took a liking to me um, as a lowly intern. And there was one day I was making coffee in the lounge and he walks up to me and he, um, I'm about six feet, but this guy is really tall. So he looks down to me to talk to me kind of a thing. He puts his arm around my shoulder and he says, Shane, I'm going to give you some advice. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter who the other person is, where they are in the pecking order of things, whatever those things might be in your career, don't ever piss anybody off because they may be nobody today, but chances are someday they're going to be somebody and you're going to need something and they're going to only remember that you were awful to them. And I just thought it was a good advice, but B interesting coming from a guy who had a long career of pissing people off. And in fact, the reason he was giving me the advice was he had just received word that he was going to be producing a project for a label that he hadn't worked for in a number of years because earlier in history, he had treated someone in the copy room or something really horribly. And that person was now the head of A&R for the label and kept him out for years. And wow. they had just kind of smoothed things over for him to produce a record for that label for the first time in a number of years. So Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I work with interns here in the studio, and I like to always think that I have to remember that these interns are going to be future label presidents. They're going to be my future boss. Right. You know? And that's yeah. a good description of the way the music business works. And, and if you treat it that way, you do great. Yeah, I think so. Meekness is hard. Regardless of your, it, you know, regardless of your abilities. What about Joe Meekness? Well, that you know, that it's speaks different. for itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, Shane, share a story with us about an important failure for you along the way in recording in your your musical journey. Right. in In thinking about that question, it harkened back to the advice that I was given because there was a period of time where I wasn't taking that advice very well, and. Um, there was a project uh, where it was a pre-release sort of a situation that they were trying to get three mixes together for an album as sort of a teaser for a conference coming up or some industry some showcase or something. And uh, I was doing recalls on a Sunday at a studio where I worked a lot. And I've never been 100% sure if working on a Sunday factored into it or not, but I do know it was early in my career when I had reached the point where people were actually calling me because I was me as opposed to calling me because I was available or calling me because I was cheaper than somebody else or whatever. And the uh, head of A&R apparently, like I have no recollection of the incident, but the head of A&R made a request and apparently I had other artistic opinions about the request and, and pushed back. I, mean, I don't remember being belligerent or anything, but remembering the era, I probably had a reason for why I thought that the acoustic didn't need to be turned up or down or whatever it was. So anyway, that day comes and goes. 
And I realized sometime later, like a year later or something, that I didn't do the rest of the record. Like I saw that the album came out, and I was like, well, that's interesting. And I only had one mix on it. And then I didn't really investigate it. I was busy enough that it, you know, it was just a fleeting thought. Sometime later, I realized that I wasn't working for that producer anymore. And some years later, probably five or six years later, I'm working at a studio in Berry Hill where I ended up taking up residency. And the head of the studio who didn't know me from the previous era, we were talking about something. He was like, oh, yeah, it's like Record X when you got fired for doing that thing. I was like, what are you talking about? And so I started doing some investigating and discovered uh, I got a meeting with the producer and we had lunch and we get to the end of the chit chat part of the lunch. I was like, Hey, I wanted to ask you about this. He's like, Oh man, didn't I tell you that story? I've told everybody that story. <laughs> I was like, well, it would have been nice if you would have told me the story, but apparently the, the label guy pulled him aside that day and said, either Shane goes or you go. Wow. And, and it was literally over a mixed week. So I wow. didn't take my mentor's advice and, and do my best to not piss somebody off. And, and, uh, uh, I ended up meeting with the label head just to say, man, you know, I'm not looking for work, but I need you to know that it bums me out that I made someone angry enough to release me from a project, not because of my work, but because of my attitude or something. So that was a pretty big turning point for me. You know, I just was watching a movie the other night called Flatliners Yeah, um, with Kevin Bacon and, and all these guys. And they, they all had to go back. They They die and then they go run into some part of their past where there's something didn't really go well and they come back to life and then they're haunted by that thing. So I yeah. wonder if that would have been your haunting and yeah. flatliners was, you know, some label head coming back, looking like a zombie telling you that you shouldn't have, you should have turned that acoustic guitar up, man. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's easy for me to make light of a bit, but it really does haunt me a little bit just because it's in direct opposition because, you know, I've been here 25 years, so it's been 25 years since that producer gave me that advice. And yeah, really? I, I always remembered that advice and let myself get to a point, ego-wise, where I didn't recall it quickly enough in a situation that... Well, and then you just look at sort of the exponential factor of it. So one negative comment that was seemed like nothing at the time had the result of a reaction that just closed a door. End of story. Absolutely. 25 years later, you just, you learn about it. Yeah. The reverse had it happened is, you know, had you managed that with a positive comment or something like that, it might've opened a door that might've led to finishing a record that might've led to working more with a particular producer, exactly. which might've led to an entire catalog on a label. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. the potential is huge yeah. for, keeping doors open for possibilities and opportunities as they come our way. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, with your advice, sometimes it's as simple as just being nice, I guess, you yeah. know, or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know that can be counterintuitive sometimes because, you know, you can't be everything to everybody. Right. But there is something about the service industry aspect of making records mm -hmm. and mixing, mm -hmm. recording, engineering, mastering, um, I once described a Bob Ludwig as being like Santa Claus. I know I look like Santa Claus right now, <laughs> but Bob Ludwig, Bob Ludwig acted like the Santa Claus of the mastering world because we did a record with him once and sent the mixes. He mastered a four-song EP, sent it back, and there was this 
you know, handwritten letter from him. And it was just like, you guys are, it's so wonderful. Your music's so fantastic. You're going to do so well. I can tell this is going to be great on radio. And I just remember having this sense that it, it felt like Santa Claus had come along and just made, made us all feel really great about our music. Yeah. That's cool. So that's, that's, you know, part of that, I think too, is just sometimes partly it's just remembering that even though we might have a vision along the way that doesn't match the same vision of the client we're working with to remember that that client, like they've got a legitimate drive purpose, you know, vision for their music and the Mm -hmm. business and what they're trying to do. And oftentimes our role is just to help them uh, along their way. Right. You know, absolutely. And you know, it's not to downplay our abilities or, you know, or that our opinion isn't important. I just, there are sometimes better ways to make your influence known than bowing up. You know, you, you present your opinion to the client when the, okay. A, they're coming to you because they want to work with you, especially at a certain point in your career. You're not just the guy who's available. They're coming because they heard of you. And you give them your opinion based on that 1.0 mix or that tracking date or whatever the case is. You give them your opinion about how it should be. And, you know, music is nothing if not all opinion. You know, there, I firmly believe there's more than one right way to do a song. Yeah. Um, there are ways that I like better than others, but a great song is a great song. And these tiny little opinions about whether that acoustic should be up a dB or not that's really not going to change the impact of that song. Right. Exactly. Over the course of time, the minutia isn't going to change whether the songs exactly going to resonate with somebody exactly, or or they're going to like the singer's voice. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's just me being able to put my ego away and go, they came to me, how awesome that they came to me and wanted to work with me. I gave them my opinion and now let's, do our best to incorporate their opinions of my opinion in these changes that we make and just leave happy and go have a beer. I think I've been fortunate enough to learn along the way that I am wrong a lot. Right. And the more often I'm ready and willing to be wrong about something, the more opportunities there are for me to learn something brand new. That's fantastic. To get better. I've been at this 25 years and I still routinely at the end of a project say, Hey, any feedback you have, I love to grow. I don't, you know, once I'm done learning and changing and growing is about the time that my career's over, in my opinion. So, you know, I'm always asking for feedback and I mean it, you know, I, I really want to be better always. Totally. Well, it's a good thing you're here at Recording Studio Rockstars. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> teach hey. me. So um, tell us a time that was a real success moment for you, something that was sort of a real hit moment. Y- you know, in thinking about that, I didn't come away with the impulse to give like one example of, of a, on this day, on this record, this happened and I was king of the world. Um, but occasionally, maybe once or twice a quarter, I'll mix a project. I mostly mix these days. So most of my anecdotes will relate to that. But I'll get a text or see a social media post from an artist who mentions the smile on their face, or even in December, uh, an artist mentioned the tears streaming down her face as she was listening to the mixes. And wow, man, you know, you just kind of want to shut down the gear and be done for the day at that you're point. Kind of, you're kind of making me feel a little emotional. Yeah, right oh, God. <laughs> Pass the Kleenex. But, you know, essentially, you just kind of want to be done for the day at that point because music is opinion. 
but it's also this living, breathing entity. I think it, it's almost cellular, you know. It, and to be able to contribute to an artist's art, because in this case, it is an actual artist. She's a writer and a performer, and has solid opinions about music outside of her own. So to be able to move someone to feel something so much that there's an emotional, physical, emotional response, that's a good day. And you just kind of want to make that the end of that day and go on. So I I, I really love when um, it doesn't have to be tears, but uh, you know, a smile or a, a pat on the back, even of man, thank you for, taking my music to the next level on this project. That, that's what about you just got a PayPal payment? Is that pretty well, good emotional response? Uh, to- that, that doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in this day and age. That at least lets you go out and celebrate over a pint. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so tell us something you're excited about right now. What's going on in your world? Um, and also I want to get into, a li- let's get a little technical here in a minute too. Yeah. Just kind of talk about your process. But Absolutely. what's going on with you these days that's real exciting? Well, uh, I've been in my current space for uh, just a little over three years, and because of that, uh, I have a little bit of recording space uh, that I've been able to finish out. So, um, again, this isn't specific, but it's a little more general. I've just been excited to, once or twice a quarter, be asked to record something for somebody again. Um, Back in the day, I know of at least two of my peers who um, were explicit that they didn't want to track. They wanted to be... Tom Lord Owls who didn't track and, you know, they just wanted to mix. And, and that was, it ended up kind of getting lumped in with them. People just assumed that since I mostly mixed, I didn't want to track. And that was never the case for me. I love getting in the room with the guys and, and if not just for the banter, you know, let alone the, the creativity, but um, I missed that. And the space I was in for 11 years in Berry Hill, there was tracking space, but someone was just off of the tracking space and I would have to ask them to not work any days that I wanted to record there. And it was, you know, it was just kind of a hassle. So it's been really fun to have, I've got, you know, I have a house kit set up and, and some amps laying around and some guys can just show up and in a quick amount of time, we can put some music together, together. And that's been really, really encouraging and, and just, um, rejuvenating even back in the day. I remember as I was starting to mix, I was tracking more than mixing, but the mix ideas you would get when the guitar player would reach down and do something on a pedal for an overdub, you're like, Oh, that would be cool on a vocal or that would be cool on a drum or, you know, just ideas that you get being in the room with people that they don't even know that they're giving you ideas for another aspect of your career. Well, there's so much you can do creatively when you're part of the recording of the music. Well, that, yeah, that's that definitely true. you can't true. do later in the mix. Exactly. So. You, I think you have a better opportunity of guiding the ship vibe-wise where it's going in the tracking process, it's, unless they go back and completely redo your drums or, or something. Um, well, you know, one of the things for me that I became aware of was that when I started this, I was playing in bands first. Mm. And then at some point I just had this, idea that, um, you know, I didn't see myself just playing in bands or continuing that as a career move. And I saw this opportunity to learn how to record records. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. It's like you're part of the band in the studio, part of that creative process doing that. And so I think there's something real appealing about just being a part of the band, you know, being with groups of people and, and, uh, doing, the process, the creative process and mixing can be less of that than, 
tracking with a right. band. You know, it's yeah. nice. It's fun to be around people. It's like being around hanging out with your friends all yeah. day long. Yeah. You know? Not everybody gets to do that for work. Exactly. And and I can't think of very many tracking situations I've been in where there wasn't, you know, at least a couple of the guys that I knew really well and, you know, knew that we would get along great just yeah. for the fun part. So, yeah. And quite honestly, we live in a world that is pushing more and more towards the digital realm mm -hmm. and isolation. You yes. know, you can kind of do your thing from yes. your laptop and whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy to forget the value of just being face-to-face -face with people. And music oh, is absolutely. about communicating. It's about you and I picking up two instruments and playing together and instantly responding to each other. It's a communication. Yep. And you get a lot of that when you're in the room recording a band or right. recording overdubs even. Yeah. And you get less of that when you're mixing. It's it's fascinating. Uh, and I think I've noticed this on the tracking dates because of the mixing situation, but how you know, you'll be working out parts or whatever, and the guitar player will speak into the bass part or vice versa, whether it's, you know, inversion of the chord or whatever, it, uh, you know, a, drums and bass, you know, who's playing what, when, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the level of communication that happens when everybody's in the same room, that if that bass player was just overdubbing to the drums, you know, he might do something and the producer would have to say later, hey, could we redo that section just to do that? Like it totally cuts a step out just being in the room together. Interestingly enough, as isolated as we've become with uh, DAWs and everybody working from home in the cloud and, and everything else, I have noticed a resurgence of uh, attended mix sessions in the last five years that I'm actually grateful for. At least one day on several projects in a quarter somebody will, the producer or the artist will come in and I really think it's saving at least three back and forth emails. Um, even if my, my mix wasn't that far off, uh, your interpretation of turn X up is different than my interpretation of turn X up most likely. So I may turn it up less than a DB because I feel that change and they were wanting two or three times that amount. Or yeah. Something. Whereas our mutual interpretation, if I'm sitting in the room with you and you turn it up and look at me and go, is that good? And I go, that's great. That's, right, exactly. that's pretty clear. Or no, I, I really need to hear that a little more. Yeah. You know, it, so boom, there was at least 20 or 30 minutes of my time saved by making the tweak, printing the version, uploading it to the cloud, getting an email back to find out that I didn't do it enough. That's pretty cool to just be in the same room for, or even I've been doing streaming uh, some as well to just kind of knock that, that fine tune stuff out without a whole bunch of back and forth. It's been great. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's a reminder to us all that the technology is great. The ability to email message, send an MP3 back and forth stream audio, but we always have to remember that doesn't always make it better or faster. Right. Yeah. Doesn't always. And sometimes you have to just be aware of where it would be. A whole lot better if you were just simply in the same space talking at the same time. But tell us about the streaming technique. I want to talk to you a little bit about your your work methods. Yeah. You know, get, get a little insight into it. So your place is St. Izzy's of the East Studio. Yes. My, my niece's name is Izzy. I love that name. It's awesome. It's so um, tell us about this streaming thing. What do you use for that? Can you describe that uh, to as if we were five years old? Yeah. Because I, uh, I kind of am. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I started uh, a few years ago. I bought a... Uh, what was at the time a plug-in 
um, I believe it was Source Elements or Source Live, one of their, not the most expensive version of what they offered, but it was a plug-in that I could put on my um, printing mix track. And then you had to set up your uh, in-studio network in such a way with a dedicated uh, address, IP address, and all that sort of stuff. But I could send a link that was password protected to the client, and they could click on that link. There, uh, eventually, there was also, I keep speaking in past tense, it still exists. Uh, there's now a, a mobile phone app or iPad app that they can click on and go right to my listening room. By for my, the Nexus Live? Uh, for the or? Source Elements. Source Elements. Yeah, yeah, or Source Live, whichever one it is. And uh, now, I know they have some different ones. There, there's sort of a very expensive yeah, plugin. There's one that's more affordable, I think. Yeah, the, I used the one that was more affordable, but they have they. I think it was the same company that they even had one where you could be in two studios and remotely control the the DAW from the other studio and and all that sort of stuff. I didn't yeah, do I think that you one. Can, you can control the talkback, so you can yeah, produce everything. from one location exactly, yeah. and you can also send overdubs over the internet right. back and forth. Yeah, pretty intense stuff. It's, cool stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, but I opted for the cheaper version, of course, and and it it's high quality. Um, and I'm doing air quotes when I say that MP3, so it's like a 320 BPS. Um, the good thing about that one is, uh, it is, um, you can do higher sample rates. So even though it's only 320 BPS, you can do all the way up to 96. How, how could you do that? Nobody listens to MP3s. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm teasing. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so I could match it to the 88.2 print rate that I do. Um, but that one, I felt like I was getting a little feedback from clients that it felt a little complicated. They were having trouble getting in sometimes and, and that sort of stuff. And so uh, this past year, I finally decided to try NiceCast, right. um, which you can trial for a while. And then when you buy it, it's 40 or 60 bucks. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it works great. And I, I did hit up a client that I had been doing streaming stuff with in the past and recalled one of their songs. I was like, Hey, do you have 20 minutes to help me out here? And they were cool. And so I gave them a link to both and we AB'd on their end and I didn't tell them the differences. And they did say that they felt like the sheen super top end was more intact on the the source version. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, and that was at 88 too. Higher high res, yeah. The other one can only go, a nice cast only does 48K, I believe. Right, okay. It okay. still does the 320 BPS. So, you know, you're getting the highest quality, again, air quotes, MP3 that you can. But nice cast is a little easier because all I have to do is send the client uh, a link and it opens as a, like a quick time page yeah, and you just hit the play icon and it's playing through your phone or your yeah, it's pretty computer easy. or whatever. So that's the one. So I've tried using NiceCast uh, as a way to reference my mix in real time off of a phone exactly. speaker, which yeah, is I've, really hip. I've been the, doing that. The only struggle with it is I think there's about a 30 second delay or something like there that. There is a delay. So yeah. you can't really make a change and then hear it right away. No, but even uh, in one of my most recent December attended sessions, uh, the producer, um, and we used to do this back in the, like there were studios that had tiny little radio broadcast setups in the control room to we're go out to the car. We're about to talk about the Oratone here in a minute. Oh, too. well, yeah, that. But uh, you could go out to your car and tune into an FM station and hear the mix back in the day for some places. Or I've run uh, 
lengths of stereo cable out to somebody's car and they were using a cassette adapter to listen in their car. Well, this was great because my Wi-Fi network was strong enough in the driveway that the producer could go out and pull up the nice cast in his truck where he's used to listening to stuff, made some notes on a little pad there on his steering wheel and came in and we knocked the rest of the mix out. Uh, so it, it's been great, not even not just for streaming remotely, but even people coming to the studio, they can go right out to their car and without us having to burn a disc or whatever, they can, you know, in the moment. And he was even texting in the truck, hey, in that chorus, can you do this? And I would do it, even though there was a lag, you know, I could just go back yeah. and do it and replay the section for him. That's great. I yeah. think I had a super complex version of that going here at one point or another. I, I think as engineers, we have a tendency to want to try out these really complex things. To over-engineer. Almost sure enough, we ditch it and yeah. then go back to the way we had it. You yeah, know? Yeah. But I had it set up because I, I can actually park a car right next to the control room. Right. So I would pull my car up and gosh, if I, if I had it right, I think I had something, the Bluetooth of my phone was connected to the uh, Bluetooth send from the computer, oh, from the great. tower. It was like, that was the Bluetooth speaker play for right. iTunes or something like yeah. that. So I was playing the music through a Bluetooth link out to the car directly. And then I had my laptop out with me, which was also screen sharing the studio oh, computer so I could control <laughs> Pro Tools and like change my mixes right there in real time. Oh, that's great. And then, you know, I, then what's funny is then you get to a point where you're like, wow, I got everything hooked up. But then I, then you realize you're like, but this totally sucks sitting in my car <laughs> holding a laptop. Right. But it is fun to mess around with that stuff and try oh, and get absolutely. it all dialed in. And yeah. it's smart to, as you're working on your mix, try and figure out, well, how can I reference this right away in right. a place that it's that I'm going to judge it later anyway. Exactly. So t I noticed in um, pictures of your studio, seeing that you have the Avantone mix yes. cube in there yeah. too, which you'll see. Yeah. I actually just picked up one of those. And um, there's a couple of things interesting about it. So it's modeled after the original Oratone speakers, Correct. which was uh, meant to be just a single, single driver speaker, really simple sounding, supposed to sort of sound like coming off of your TV speaker. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have any high end, doesn't have any low end but uh, allows you to, to judge some stuff. Mm -hmm. And then what else is interesting is that um, you had one of them, and so do I. Can, yes. can you talk about why that is? Why don't you well, have two Oratones in your studio? Um, because it would be twice the bad-sounding speaker? No, uh, it's a trick. Uh, I don't guess we need to call it a trick, but it's something I picked up from um, older country engineers when I was on staff at a studio uh, called Quad Studios. And there was a particular country guy that I was assisting back there, and and uh, he set up one aritone right in the middle of the console. He put a little foam under it so it was pointing right up at his face, and he would throw the mix in mono. After he did his board mix, and had he, he had had you know he had his pan set up the way he wanted and everything, as he automated, he was listening through this mono speaker, and it's really interesting the things that get revealed when you're not consumed by, you know, the big lush stereo image and, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I just observed him and, and kind of after my time there, which was the first six months of 1992 or something like that. No, 94, whatever. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Uh, I kind of just filed it away because it was definitely not something that most of the people that I was assisting at the time were doing. It was just this older generation of guys who had had big hits in the seventies and early eighties in country, I think. Um, eventually I ended up at the studio where I was in Berry Hill and 
Um, I had started summing in mono through a boom box um, where I would set it off to the side and, and put the mix down to mono. And I, I was finding value in that. Like once I put it back on my mains, it was like, oh, this mix really came alive. And then I'd do a little fine tuning and eventually send it to the client. Um, but around that time, Aventone came out with their version that they call the Mix Cube. And I picked one up and just put an, an extra amp that I had on it and put it right in the center of the console like the old guys that I had seen doing it had done it. And I love it. And I'm still doing it now. Yeah, I actually got the one that's self-powered too. So this one you just plug well, right into it. I, th- I actually um, split a pair with a great engineer by the name of F. Reed Chippen. And uh, he was buying a set and we both only wanted one. And so he sent his intern or assistant to buy a set and his assistant drops it off. And I realized it was the not powered version. And he was like, I didn't even know that was an option. Come to find out there had been a factory fire or something. And at the time we bought, you couldn't get the powered version. They were unavailable. So I wish I had the power version. Well, it's it's all right. I'm just pointing out that they both exist. They do. You can go either way. But so now tell us, um, let's get specific about it. What are the things that you find yourself repeatedly listening for on that speaker? And also, can you explain to somebody who doesn't quite understand what, what it means to have a mono mix feeding that speaker. Right. Because you're mixing in stereo, right? You're making Correct. a stereo record. So yes. what's that all about? So on my monitor control system, there's a switch for stereo or mono. So mono is taking both channels and summing them together, normally out both left and right outputs of the, the monitor system. I am just taking then one of those feeds um, and going to an amp and then to the Aventone. Um, or you could do the um, the powered one and bypass the amp altogether. So it's it's kind of the same as if you had just taken everything in your mix and panned it. Right up the center or all the way to the left or all the way to the right, yeah. Um, so a few things happen when that happens. A lot of times in the audio world, and even some pro audio manufacturers make the mistake of, we call that switch on a mic pre or whatever, the phase switch which is usually labeled positive or negative, that's not a phase switch. That's a polarity switch where you're taking the sine wave form and you're making what was the peak become the valley and what was the valley become the peak. Um, There is phase in audio, however, where, say, your overheads and your snare mic, um, the snare is going to hit the snare mic quicker than it's going to hit the overheads just by the very physics of distance. So there's going to be a a time delay there. So when you're mixing in mono, some of those phase correlations in your mix, whether it's two guitar mics uh, or even a doubled guitar part, sometimes it's interesting to to hear what happens when you have um, like a power guitar that's playing in the choruses. If you flip the polarity on one side, it makes a sonic difference, even though it's two performances, how those peaks and valleys are adding together and canceling each other out or... um, actually uh, summing together, you may feel low mids build up in the mix that you might not have noticed as quickly if it was out in stereo. Um, but mostly I'm using it for balancing. I'm, I'm doing my automation there and, and it's uh, there's a little less of the distraction of the guitar that you're doing automation rides on being all the way over to the left or whatever. If it's all right there, you hear more directly its relationship to the vocal or whatever it's relating against at that point in the mix. Um, Is there an EQ move that you find yourself repeatedly doing when you switch to mono? uh, Probably not 
any more than than I normally would. You know, that generally that desire to kind of find some of that low mid stuff that every single instrument and voice in a song shares. You know, what um, explain to us what low mid is? Uh, for me, it would be in the three fifty down to one fifty kind of range. That place that. Those frequencies exist in a, a vocal. Those frequencies exist in a kick drum. Those frequencies exist in a snare and a bass and a guitar and an acoustic and a piano. So once you have literally sometimes almost every single instrument in a song having some of those frequencies in it, you do find yourself in some of those channels needing to dial that back or you kind of end up with this big old mud pit of a mix, uh, which sometimes is desirable and sometimes isn't. So. You know, I think there must be something to a correlation between mixing multi-track elements versus the way elements, those same elements would mix themselves naturally in the air. Yes. So like all those instruments playing in a room together and being recorded on a stereo pair of mics, I don't think you'd get the same kind of low mid buildup that you do when you're miking them individually and mixing them together. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. If, if for no other reason than just a proximity effect on a car, you know, most of the time in multi-tracking, we're doing a lot of cardioid microphone miking. Uh, and there's the effect called proximity effect that the closer you get to a cardioid microphone, the more bottom end buildup you get in the sound just by the, the, again, the nature of physics. Can, can you demonstrate you're on a cardioid mic right now? Right? I am on a cardioid mic, so I'm now going to get louder, but I'll also get boomier the closer I get to the microphone. And then if you're back off the mic, it sounds like this. Thinner. Yes. Well, right on, man. Well, so uh, let's switch gears here and We'll head on into the jam session. And for listeners, rock stars, just a reminder that I will have all the stuff that we're talking about linked in the show notes so that you can go directly and just kind of click through on some of these things and check them out if you want. Um, the show notes will be at, at recordingstudiorockstars.com. And then um, you can find the uh, the episode here with Shane D. Wilson to look at the, you know, the stuff that I write in there. But also if you're listening to this on your iPhone in the podcast app and you're playing it, if you press on the episode that is playing at the bottom of your screen, depending on what iOS you're in at this point, and it'll zip up and you'll see the full screen, you'll see the Recording Studio Rockstars logo there. And then if you just press on the logo, it will... Um, pull it up like a, like a window shade. It just kind of zips up and there you see all the show notes. So you can click right through. So it's pretty hip. Not everybody knows about that, but it's an easy way if you're listening on your phone to just go directly right now and go learn more. And uh, we'll be back in just a second with the jam session. Right on. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Well, hey, Rockstars, I'm back here at Recording Studio Rockstars with Shane D. Wilson, and we're going to jump into the jam session. Are you ready to jam, Shane? Let's jam. Awesomeness. So, Shane, tell us, when you started out in recording, what was holding you back from getting going? What, what was what was keeping you pinned down, man? Yeah. My gut response would be ego, but that's a little too broad because what I would say, and I feel like I especially notice it the farther into DAW and what I like to call uh, kitchen table top recording that we've uh, come to is sort of... And specifically, you're talking about recording on a computer. Yeah, yeah. Or For somebody who doesn't know what a DAW is necessarily. Sorry, yes. It's like Pro Tools, yes. Studio One, Logic, all those things. Any of those. Um, you know, you leave a recording program like I did, or you get yourself hooked up with a piece of technology that you get to know really well, which is what kind of happens now. And maybe your folks have spent six figures on an education for you. Uh, you kind of have the tendency to believe that you know it all. And um, or that you better by this point, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and I mentioned earlier, you know, I, as soon as I'm done learning, I'm done getting better at what I do. And, and I think that's a disservice to me. I'm, I don't, it kind of doesn't even matter if it's a disservice to my clients at that point. I want to be better. I want to get better. And I think the biggest thing that can hold a person back is, is really feeling like you've got it all together. Um, you need to be open to new ideas and, and especially starting out, you have to know that just because you left a recording program with a piece of paper that says you checked all the boxes that needed to be checked to get that piece of paper, man, you're just getting started. You are just getting started. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, sometimes I feel like even down the road, uh, it's even more important to be open to learning mm -hmm. because the industry has changed so much since when we started. You oh, know? If you so don't much. change with it, you're done. And I, you know, there are people who, whom uh, I assisted who aren't doing this at all anymore. And um, that happens in any industry, but it's especially happened a lot in pro audio in the last several years. And part of that, I can think of a few specifically that I know it was because we could see the tide offshore. We saw it coming in, but they were so sure that two inch tape sounded so much better than pro tools, which that's an opinion I can, I can, I can go with. I dig that opinion. I love that. 
but it was obvious that the tide was coming into shore and they didn't make some business adjustments. They didn't make, uh, they didn't go as far to learn about the new technology to make it the best that it could be, even with its limitations. And when that tide came in, their careers were washed away. And some of us were smarter to go a few more feet up onto the beach and uh, towards the snack stand and, and just wait for that tide to roll back out. And, and those are the ones of us that uh, I feel like are still working and yeah. actually providing for our families that way. Well, and I think that that certainly applies to the digital technology that is used to make the recordings and make the records. But I think that, especially after you've been doing it for a while, it very much applies if you're an entrepreneur and you're self-employed with your own studio to the business side. Absolutely. And, you know, learning and understanding the internet technology that goes with operating your business as a studio and embracing that stuff. Because you get sick of it. I mean, you know, when I, first time I ever had to deal with Facebook, I was just like, really, do I have to do this thing? Is this like, mm-hmm. it's really important for me to post pictures of what I'm eating for breakfast for people right. to see in order to succeed at making records. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, anyway. All right. Well, so share with us and I, and I know you did this earlier, but do you have some more of the best advice that you remember receiving? Along yeah. The way? I'll reiterate, do your best not to piss anybody off. And, uh, one of the first guys, uh, for whom I interned after I interned uh, at a studio pointed out to me that if you're really battling a kick drum sound, uh, look around 500 Hertz. You, you might find that uh, you don't want it in there quite so much. Very cool, man. Um, another guest on the show is Ronan Chris Murphy, and he has this wonderful drum recording boot camp video series where he talks about that too. And and in watching it, I was sort of reminded of that. He's just like, you know, pulling 500 hurts out of kind of all the drum mm-hmm. mics. And mm-hmm. then I listened, I was like, well, hot damn, I forgot yeah, about that. Exactly <laughs> it really good. does sound better. I need to start doing that. So I did that just yesterday on a session, actually doing yep. some strings and it was multi-tracked. And mm-hmm. so that when it all stacks up, I think it's that same topic. It's the, all those frequencies, those shared frequencies start to lump up yep. from the multi-tracks. And so just pulling them, pulling them back, pulling them back, mm-hmm. pulling them back. So um, this is a shout out to microphone designers. Can you guys just please put in a 500 hertz <laughs> dip in every microphone you make so we don't have to do this anymore? <laughs> All right, cool, man. Well, so now share with us a uh, favorite recording tip, hack, or secret sauce. In thinking about that question, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I remember when I first got started with audio when I was like 12 or 13 at a little church where a guy let me help with the live sound stuff because he saw I was always poking around. This guy meant a lot to me. Well, later on, somebody else took over the program and this new guy rewired everything and changed. We had been using the aux sends uh, on the live console as a, a separate record path for cassettes that people could then buy and listen to the service later or something like that. And the new guy rewired everything and his defense was, we're going to break the console because we're not using that for what it's labeled for. And even at 13, I was like, well, that's stupid. You're kind of a dumbass, you know, but going forward with school and career. You were working on that overconfidence early on. (laughs) Yeah, I was, but you know, clearly the guy was an idiot. Um, Sorry, that's, that's not nice, but it's kind of true. But later on, one of the most fun ways I have working on a session, whether it's tracking or mixing, is using things, uh, pieces of gear for things other than what 
they may have been made for. Uh, I love to occasionally really screw up a vocal by blending in um, a signal that I've sent out to um, Radio Shack uh, when they were a thing. I had a company called Realistic where they made their own equipment and they made these little things called pillow speakers that uh, oh, yeah, I you, remember could, those things. you could plug your radio into this speaker that you kept under your pillow and you could fall asleep listening to the radio or, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, cause that's easy to do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they just store really nicely. There's a tiny little two or three inch driver in there. I don't even know how big they are, but it's a tiny little box and I hook it up to a nine volt supply and an eighth inch jack and I send a signal out to it and I'll blend that under the vocal or um, using a, a memory man delay guitar pedal as uh, something other than a guitar pedal, a, a vocal effect or a drum effect or or whatever. Just just because something is labeled that it does X does not mean that it can't be used for Y. And it kind of opens up a, a whole new thing for you as your sound uh, that you can kind of make your own. You know, I'll take that a moment further too and say, or reiterate the point that using stuff for things that it's not intentionally or not originally intended for is a smart way to discover and explore. But also remembering that in the end, listen to the dang thing. Right. And make sure that it sounds better because we can also get stuck in the reverse. Sometimes we, oh, get, absolutely. we start using our tricks yeah. all the time and then you you know you mute it one day and you're like wait a minute it sounded better before I messed with it absolutely too. yeah it's sort of like uh, the chefs that uh, don't put salt and pepper shakers on the table because you know the the food's probably seasoned just right when it comes out of the kitchen so nah yeah <laughs> I sure hope they put Tabasco sauce out though well that's different yeah as my friend Chris King once said. Everything tastes better with Tabasco sauce. <laughs> In fact, sorry to go on a tangent, but once upon a time, I noticed that um, every time I was drinking my coffee as a youngster and we were eating spicy food, I was like, man, this coffee always tastes so much better when I'm eating spicy food. <laughs> so I thought, why not just skip the omelet and I'll see what happens if I just dump Tabasco sauce straight in my coffee. So, you know, there you go. Perfect example of using something in the wrong way. Guess what? It didn't taste it didn't very work. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. All right, cool. So Shane, tell us about a favorite hardware tool for the studio. Something that you just, when you do sessions and you have this thing, yeah. it always seems to make it better. Uh, the uh, Roland Space Echo RE201. Uh, love it for tracking. Love it for mixing. Awesome. Uh, I love it when the tape is starting to wear out and it's, it's uh, wowing and fluttering all over the place and distorting. I love it when I put a new tape in and it cleans up and it makes a great vocal delay or something on a does cleaner pop song. Does that have the spring song. reverb in it too? It does. Oh, it's a great sound. Yeah, it does. So, um, and then, uh, you know, where does one find one of those these days? That's Man. Like old school. Yeah, it is old school, but they still show up on reverb.com or Craigslist in your hometown. There are plenty of guys that, had them at one time that left them in a closet or something. And it's not just the 201 there, you know, there are several models of it that any one of them is just fine. Very cool. And I noticed you didn't say eBay. Uh, it, it's available there too. Yeah, yeah, sure. I just, I tend to not go there first necessarily. And yeah. I, I kind of want, and let, if there's a buy it now, I'm all, I don't want to fight for something. Either sell it to me or don't, man. I got enough competition <laughs> in every other aspect of my life. I don't need it to be about the stuff I buy. I'm a busy guy. <laughs> All right. So share with us now a favorite software tool for the studio. 
I love the Sound Toys suite of plugins. Everything that company does makes me smile. I, I just, I, I love them. And I have multiples of their stuff on every mix. I just love those guys. Um, and now they've moved up to the, the Sound Toys 5. Yes. With is the, that right? The 5 or the 4? The 5, right? I think it's it the 5. Yeah. yeah. With the, the rack. effects rack. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great company. Um, and uh, is it uh, South by Southwest every year that they've been releasing the free thing? You got to keep your eye on social media to find a download code. But Oh, maybe so. I don't know. Yeah. Don't it know. started with, was it the radiator that they started with? That um, there was the little version and then eventually the full version. And they did it with the, the, the prime time, the lexicon prime time delay, the primal tap. Oh, you've got the real one over there. Absolutely. Um, and a couple of their others that they, they, um, they'll introduce a free one and you just need to look for a download code that's connected to a buddy, but it's generally around South by Southwest that they release their next plugin. So keep yeah. an eye on social media for that. And the radiator is very cool. It's modeled after the Altec mixers. Right? It is. Yep. And I just, just got that. And then I used it on my, all my vocals on a yeah. record. I just, mixed. it's great. Let's just put this, just this right. Cool thing on it. Yep. It's fun. Yep. All right. Awesome. So and I will I'm, say, sorry, oh, yeah, one ahead. other thing I, I had to pick two for this question. Um, I am, in love with the um, FabFilter Pro-Q uh, 2 EQ right now. Love that thing. It's not a character EQ. Uh, it's a great surgical EQ, but I love that it has the um, audio analysis going on. You can actually visualize the problem areas or the lacking areas. While um, you're EQing. While you're EQing. Yeah, it's a yeah. great plugin. So I've noticed that a lot of the audio bloggers that I really admire have been using that. I don't have the FabFilter yet. I need to get it. FabFilter, I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I need, I'm going I'm to come get that and start using it in the mix. Uh, but um, tell us a little bit more about it. So I know that you can, it's sort of a visual graphic EQ. Mm -hmm. You can drag your points around. So that might look familiar, but uh, I, I've heard that it sounds fantastic. Yeah, it sounds great. And you've got the visual yeah. um, real-time analyzer of your audio audio signal so you can yep. see when there's a lump in the low And there's end. even a cool little feature. Like I, I just love developers and the way they think sometimes. Like there's a cool little feature that if you uh, have your cursor over a certain part of the screen, it'll momentarily freeze the waveform even. So you can go, oh, okay, right there. And you click on it and you pull up or down uh, whatever it is you wanted to do to it. It's a bit of a cheat. I'll admit that, that it is a bit of a cheat to be able to, to visualize in that way. But sometimes... Uh, uh, I do a lot of hardware inserts in my mix and I'll do the more fine tuning aspect with a little plug in after the hardware a lot of times. And man, when you're just really flying through a mix and you know, there's a problem you go over and you click on that pro cue and you're like, Oh yeah, there it is. Just maybe it's only saving me seconds, but sometimes it's nice to be able to fly like that. Have you found that visual aids like a real time analyzer, like the pro cue filter, uh, or Fab Filter, Fab Filter Pro Q, Fab Filter Pro Q. That those tools help you understand low end um, and bass in, in the audio, where sometimes the speakers, where you're having trouble hearing it or or hearing it accurately, or you know you're not going to hear it till you go listen to it in the car right. or whatever. Uh, real time analysis was definitely more helpful for me back in the day when I was traveling studio to studio and wasn't necessarily always in the same room. It definitely, especially on the early part of a project mix, it really helped you go, Oh, I see what's happening in this room. Cause you could literally see what was happening as you were mixing. You would see a buildup or not, uh, at some point in your mix. And you realize that you weren't hearing things in the room quite the way you, th you thought you were. 
Um, so back in the day, that was definitely the case. Uh, now with this, it really is kind of more of just a quick, something doesn't feel right about channel X and you look up and go, Oh, well, yeah, of course it doesn't. And yeah. Right on. That's cool, man. I'm gonna, I look forward to checking that out. All right. So share with us now a, a special resource for the business side of of doing your studio or, or making records or just making a living doing this. Obviously right. if it's a hobby, you might not have the business side, but if it's, if you're doing this for a living at all, you certainly need to address that. Uh, and this was, I know you asked specifically for a re- resource on it and I thought I would turn the resource into a bit of advice, which goes back to when I first went independent. One of the guys uh, for whom I was an intern gave me some business advice at one point and it was specifically about taxes and it was, he takes, Every check that comes in, he has a separate savings account that he diverts money to so that if you're paying quarterly or if you're one who pays just annually, there's something there. You're, you're as prepared as you can be for uh, either April 15th or September 15th or January 15th or whenever it is you're sending off your payment. Uh, so I always take about, I think it's about 25% of every check goes to a savings account that online is even labeled tax account and pay my taxes out of that. Um, I'll go one step beyond what the advice I was given. He forgot to specifically tell me about self-employment tax. He had been to a college program where there was a business side to the degree, so he knew about it. Uh, I come from a small farming and manufacturing community in Indiana where people don't talk about such things. So I thought I was saving enough money and come the first time I filed taxes for my wife and I, after I became independent, I was smacked in the face quickly because I had not saved the portion of my tax bill that was self-employment tax, which uh, was quite a hit. So just plan ahead, you know, don't, don't let the business part of what you're doing that, that will impact the artistic side. If you're worried about stuff, it, it affects your art. It really does put you in a place where you're, you're not creating as well as you could be. So you know, my son's in Boy Scouts and he's trying to learn how to be prepared. And I think it's good advice for all of us to, it's not fun to talk about taxes and think about taxes and, and do that sort of stuff. But if you're doing this as a career, be ready to give the the man his cut and, and set that aside so that you're not just totally sick and stressed out every time it's tax time. Yeah, really. I think that's a great point about freeing your mind of these concerns so that when you're in the creative process, you can just focus on that. Cause if you're trying to focus on the mix and you're thinking about something else going on at the mm-hmm. same time, you're going to just be distracted the whole time. Exactly. It's one of the reasons why I'll turn my phone off on silent, turn it over. You got to put it away from yeah. you. You can't have any, you can't leave these usual distractions around when you're trying to get creative, mm-hmm. really got to ditch them. Um, so now as far as your process, is there any other detail about how you go about saving that 25% that you found to be real handy? Do you have like special tricks that you use in, in your online banking that make no, it easy I, or do you just, I literally physically move the money, you know, being self-employed, you never know when you're getting paid for a project, you know? So just whenever that money rolls in, that's one of the first things that comes off the top is, is uh, the savings. the tax account yeah. savings Smart. and and I'm not precious about it either. So for years, a piece of gear that you didn't know you needed, I'm doing air quotes again, uh, shows up on Reverb.com or eBay or whatever. You kind of have a little little fun there because your gear buying does affect your tax bill in the end. So I've never been too afraid of every once in a while dipping into that for something that I'm buying for the business. Um, it kind of becomes almost an emergency fund. Even, you know, there've been a few times, uh, 
I'll be honest, when I was young, we didn't have health insurance and my wife needed a surgery. And, you know, those medical bills also affect the end tax bill. So I didn't feel too horrible about dipping into a savings account. No brainer. Yeah, that actually had money sitting there. Um, So it is our tax account, but it can come in handy as an extra emergency fund. And uh, I have dipped into it more than once for a, a, a little piece of goodness to have around the studio. Yeah, well, good advice. So the reminder, of course, is that the um, gear buying is a deductible expense. Correct. So that is a form of paying a tax. Yeah. And then uh, same with medical expenses. Exactly. It's a form of it. All right, cool. So um, now here we get into the metaphysical kind of a hypothetical yeah. question here. So maybe in today's time, today's now, if you were to rewind and imagine yourself starting all over again and you were starting off in a new city and you needed some kind of setup to start recording you needed to meet people to make music with or record with. Um, and more importantly, you needed to make ends meet so that you could continue to do this stuff and survive. How would you do that? I've thought about this one. In some ways, in spite of analog going by the wayside to a certain extent and, and those sort of things from my past that I, we've all been really passionate about, it really is a great time to be making music. Like You can be creative almost anywhere now. Uh, so if I were starting over, had to go somewhere else, I really do think, you know, you can get an affordable laptop. The Apollo series of UA interfaces are the most stupidly ridiculous, cool things to come along in so long. And now with the plugins that model preamps that you can record through uh, with those devices um, and an SM7 and some good cans, obviously, um, but if I had those tools, I really feel like it would be possible to help somebody visualize uh, their art in most situations, I think. And I would hope to meet them in uh, local clubs and um, coffee shops. Uh, You're always going to find a musician hanging around that or a a good pub um, and, you know, make connections that way. Yeah, go where the musicians go, right? Exactly. Now, what about the making ends meet part of it? You know, somehow you gotta. Yeah. You're you're maybe you're young, maybe you're. Uh, well, you're still young, sir. No, yeah. But maybe maybe this is like, like you know pretend. when you're in your twenties, or maybe it's yeah. now. But you know, one way or another, you've got to survive. Right. While you build your music career. Absolutely. What advice do you have to somebody who's just starting out? Well, I definitely say, price yourself accordingly. You know, it, it, this gets back to ego. You know, you're not engineer X starting out. So don't try to charge like engineer X because chances are starting out, you're going to make a mistake and your client's going to be more offended that they were paying you so much when you didn't know something that you should have known or whatever. So price yourself accordingly. And in the long run, that's going to help you. But when I got here, I spent almost the first year and a half when I was working for free working a second shift tape duplication factory job. Don't be afraid to do something to make money to support your art. Um, at the same time, I had peers specifically who were musicians that they got right out of their program and they were the, at the top of their game when they, when they left their program, whatever instrument they were on. And they went the route of keeping uh, a safe 40 hour gig that they had acquired at an unrelated business, but good money, good benefits. And at the time it, felt right that they were getting out of school and and making money. Oh, I can still, you know, I can still do sessions and take personal days and vacation days. Well, they became not an in-demand player and kind of had to 
start things a few years later when they realized that was a mistake. So they quit the 40 hour thing and kind of had to start over getting their name back out there. Um, and it took a few years. So two things, don't be afraid to make money in uh, doing something that's not related to your art, uh, to make ends meet until you can make ends meet by doing your art. But at the same time, don't put yourself in such a safe place with that other thing that you lose track of the ability to, to keep creating. Yeah. Hunger is the, the greatest motivator yeah, for indeed. doing it and doing it soon and doing it right. Um, but you know, you talked about doing your work in a tape duplication plant and there is some relation to the music aspect of that. There can be. Yep. And I remember when I moved to Nashville, I saw that there were a lot of people that might go work in uh, either live sound mm-hmm. or, Cartage. Cartage is a thing that exists in Nashville, Tennessee, being a recording place. Cartage is where musicians, engineers, producers will keep their stuff. So they've got racks of gear and instruments and everything. And you don't want to, you, you know, people don't necessarily load it up in their the back of their station wagon, take it to the studio every day when they're going to work. They might leave it at a cartage place and then have cartage deliver it in a truck and drop it off at the studio. And I've seen people work there where you know, you're around music and you're, you're going to see right. studios and you're in and out of places and you're meeting people and networking. So yep. that can be a good way to do it too. Absolutely. Maybe deliver pizzas where everybody's making records. There. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say this, Chris Mara, welcome to 1979 studios. I knew Chris hadn't been to his studio and last year, uh, he just wanted to connect and we, he is a motorcycle rider. I'm a motorcycle rider. Just thought it would be cool to connect and and uh, go have a drink. So he was like, well, why don't you come see the place? And I was like, oh, yeah, I heard great things about it. I'd love to do that. Gives me the directions. I'm riding my bike over. I take the first exit. I was like, oh, man, I haven't been on this side of town in a while. This is cool. I take another turn. Well, this is interesting. I take another turn. No, it's not possible. I pull up to the door. Welcome to 1979 is in the factory where I was in quality control for tape duplication back in 1991 and 92. His control room, if you're looking at his console, if you look over your left shoulder at the back of the room, that was the, again, I'm doing air quotes, uh, quality control station for cassette duplication at that factory. That, that was the URP, United Record Pressing, was it or not? No, it was uh, NTC, uh, NTC, National Tape Corporation. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So you worked in that same building. Yep. trip. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a great place too. I'm looking forward to having... Chris on recording studio rock stars. Oh, you should. Definitely going to do that. He is a wealth of information. All right. So now tell us, here's a very important question for our listeners. What's the single most important thing that they can do to become a rock star of the recording studio? Listen, listen to people uh, for whom you have respect with what they do. Listen to music Uh, It's easy once you've been doing this a while and not even that long once you've been doing it, it's easy to stop listening to music and and stop listening to what other people have to say. Um, Just the other day, I um, was looking at some year-end album lists and realized, you know what? I've heard about that and I haven't heard it. I've heard that, but I heard it in a coffee shop. I haven't really heard it. So I bought several albums and uh, I was recently doing a uh, system drive upgrade on my Pro Tools computer and reinstalling a new version or installing a new version of pro tools, reinstalling a fresh OS. And that takes a day or two. So I found myself on my laptop, uh, just hitting play on some new albums and hearing some things that I used to do as fun ear candy or an interesting choice in a mix that, Oh man, I stopped doing that. Cause I was doing it on every other record or whatever. And you kind of put it away and forget about it. And it was kind of a reminder 
of some things I used to do. And also a couple of things where I was like, Oh, I wouldn't have thought to do that. And I've made use of one of those tricks just this week on a project. So, um, just continue to listen, whether it's listening to art or listening to people who have gone before you, um, just listen. I like it. You're talking about, um, tricks for recording, mixing, and putting them away and bringing them back out. It's like toys, right? When you're oh, a kid, absolutely. You, you rediscover a toy that you forgot about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right on. Well, Shane, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Can you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you or follow you and, and find out more about you? Yeah. Um, the easiest way, I guess, is uh, I have a, a an artist page or whatever you would call it on Facebook. That's Shane D. Wilson, Recording Engineer Mixer. Uh, I periodically post pictures of something I'm doing in the studio or I'll give a link to an album that I'm happy to have been a part of or or some such thing as that. So check me out there. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much, man. Thank you. I look forward to uh, seeing you around the studio. Yeah. All right, dude. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.